Section 44 of Volume 1b of History of England from the Invasion of Julius Caesar to the Revolution of 1688. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Daniel Fraser. History of England from the Invasion of Julius Caesar to the Revolution of 1688 by David Hume, Volume 1b, Section 44, Chapter 20, Part 2. The Duke of Bedford could easily foresee the bad effects of so ill-timed and imprudent a quarrel. All the succours which he expected from England, and which were so necessary in his critical emergence, were intercepted by his brother, and employed in Holland and Hainaut. The forces of the Duke of Burgundy, which he also depended on, were diverted by the same wars. And besides this double loss, he was in imminent danger of alienating forever that confederate whose friendship was of the utmost importance, and whom the late king had enjoined him, with his dying breath, to gratify by every mark of regard and attachment. He represented all these topics to the Duke of Gloucester. He endeavoured to mitigate the resentment of the Duke of Burgundy. He interposed with his good offices between these princes, but was not successful in any of his endeavours, and he found that the impetuosity of his brother's temper was still the chief obstacle to all accommodation. For this reason, instead of pushing the victory gained at Vernoy, he found himself obliged to take a journey into England, and to try, by his counsels and authority, to moderate the measures of the Duke of Gloucester. There had, likewise, broken out some differences among the English ministry, which had proceeded to great extremities, and which required the regent's presence to compose them. The Bishop of Winchester, to whom the care of the king's person and education had been entrusted, was a prelate of great capacity and experience, but of an intriguing and dangerous character. And as he aspired to the government of affairs, he had continual disputes with his nephew the protector, and he gained frequent advantages over the vehement and impolitic temper of that prince. The Duke of Bedford employed the authority of Parliament to reconcile them, and these rivals were obliged to promise, before that assembly, that they would bury all quarrels in oblivion. Time also seemed to open expedients for composing the difference with the Duke of Burgundy. The credit of that prince had procured a bull from the Pope, by which not only Jacqueline's contract with the Duke of Gloucester was annulled, but it was also declared that, even in case of the Duke of Brabant's death, it should never be lawful for her to espouse the English prince. Humphrey, despairing of success, married another lady of inferior rank, who had lived some time with him as his mistress. The Duke of Brabant died, and his widow, before she could recover possession of her dominions, was obliged to declare the Duke of Burgundy her heir, in case she should die without issue, and to promise never to marry without his consent. But though the affair was thus terminated to the satisfaction of Philip, it left a disagreeable impression on his mind. It excited an extreme jealousy of the English, and opened his eyes to his true interests. And as nothing but his animosity against Charles had engaged him in alliance with them, 
it counterbalanced that passion by another of the same kind, which in the end became prevalent, and brought him back by degrees to his natural connections with his family and his native country. About the same time, the Duke of Brittany began to withdraw himself from the English alliance. His brother, the Count of Richemont, though connected by marriage with the Dukes of Burgundy and Bedford, was extremely attached by inclination to the French interest, and he willingly hearkened to all the advances which Charles made him for obtaining his friendship. The staff of constable, vacant by the Earl of Buchan's death, was offered him, and, as his martial and ambitious temper aspired to the command of armies, which he had in vain attempted to obtain from the Duke of Bedford, he not only accepted that office, but brought over his brother to an alliance with the French monarch. The new constable, having made this one change in his measures, firmly adhered ever after to his engagements with France. Though his pride and violence, which would admit of no rival in his master's confidence, and even prompted him to assassinate the other favourites, had so much disgusted Charles that he once banished him the court, and refused to admit him to his presence, he still acted with vigour for the service of that monarch, and obtained at last, by his perseverance, the pardon of all past offences. In this situation, the Duke of Bedford, on his return, found the affairs of France, after passing eight months in England. The Duke of Burgundy was much disgusted. The Duke of Brittany had entered into engagements with Charles, and had done homage to that prince for his duchy the French had been allowed to recover from the astonishment into which their frequent disasters had thrown them. An incident, too, had happened, which served extremely to raise their courage. The Earl of Warwick had besieged Montargis with a small army of three thousand men, and the place was reduced to extremity, when the bastard of Orléans undertook to throw relief into it. This general, who was natural son to the prince assassinated by the Duke of Burgundy, and who was afterwards created Count of Dunois, conducted a body of 1,600 men to Montargis, and made an attack on the enemy's trenches with so much valour, prudence, and good fortune, that he not only penetrated into the place, but gave a severe blow to the English, and obliged Warwick to raise the siege. This was the first signal action that raised the fame of Dunois, and opened him the road to those great honours, which he afterwards attained. But the regent, soon after his arrival, revived the reputation of the English arms by an important enterprise which he happily achieved. He secretly brought together, in separate detachments, a considerable army to the frontiers of Brittany, and fell so unexpectedly upon that province that the duke, unable to make resistance, yielded to all the terms required of him, he renounced the French alliance. He engaged to maintain the Treaty of Troyes. He acknowledged the Duke of Bedford for regent of France, and promised to do homage for his duchy to King Henry. And the English prince, having thus freed himself from a dangerous enemy who lay behind him, resolved on an undertaking which, if successful, would, he hoped, cast the balance between the two nations, and prepare the way for the final conquest of France. The city of Orléans was so situated between the provinces commanded by Henry and those possessed by Charles that it opened an easy entrance to either. 
and as the duke of bedford intended to make a great effort for penetrating into the south of france it behoved him to begin with this place which in the present circumstances was become the most important in the kingdom he committed the conduct of the enterprise to the earl of salisbury who had newly brought him a reinforcement of six thousand men from england and who had much distinguished himself by his abilities during the course of the present war salisbury passing the loire made himself master of several small places which surrounded orleans on that side and as his intentions were thereby known the french king used every expedient to supply the city with a garrison and provisions and enable it to maintain a long and obstinate siege the lord of gucor a brave and experienced captain was appointed governor many officers of distinction threw themselves into the place the troops which they conducted were inured to war and were determined to make the most obstinate resistance and even the inhabitants disciplined by the long continuance of hostilities were well qualified in their own defence to second the efforts of the most veteran forces the eyes of all europe were turned toward this scene where it was reasonably supposed the french were to make their last stand for maintaining the independence of their monarchy and the rights of their sovereign the earl of salisbury at last approached the place with an army which consisted only of ten thousand men and not being able with so small a force to invest so great a city that commanded a bridge over the loire he stationed himself on the southern side towards Soulogne, leaving the other toward the Beauce, still open to the enemy he there attacked the fortifications which guarded the entrance to the bridge and after an obstinate resistance he carried several of them but was himself killed by a cannonball as he was taking a view of the enemy the earl of suffolk succeeded to the command and being reinforced with great numbers of english and burgundians he passed the river with the main body of his army and invested orleans on the other side as it was now the depth of winter suffolk who found it difficult in that season to throw up entrenchments all around contented himself for the present with erecting redoubts at different distances where his men were lodged in safety and were ready to intercept the supplies which the enemy might attempt to throw into the place though he had several pieces of artillery in his camp and this among the first sieges in europe where cannon were found to be of importance the art of engineering was hitherto so imperfect that suffolk trusted more to famine than to force for subduing the city and he purposed in the spring to render the circumvallation more complete by drawing entrenchments from one redoubt to another numberless feats of valour were performed both by the besiegers and besieged during the winter bold sallies were made and repulsed with equal boldness convoys were sometimes introduced and often intercepted the supplies were still unequal to the consumption of the place and the english seemed daily though slowly to be advancing towards the completion of their enterprise but while suffolk lay in this situation the french parties ravaged all the country around and the besiegers who were obliged to draw their provisions from a distance were themselves exposed to the danger of want and famine sir john fastolf was bringing up a large convoy of even kind of stores 
which he escorted with a detachment of two thousand five hundred men when he was attacked by a body of four thousand french under the command of the counts of clermont and dunois fastolf drew up his troops behind the wagons but the french generals afraid of attacking him in that posture planted a battery of cannon against him which threw everything into confusion and would have ensured them the victory had not the impatience of some scottish troops who broke the line of battle brought on an engagement in which fastolf was victorious the count of dunois was wounded and about five hundred french were left on the field of battle this action which was of great importance in the present conjuncture was commonly called the battle of herrings because the convoy brought a great quantity of that kind of provisions for the use of the english army during the lent season charles seemed now to have but one expedient for saving this city which had been so long invested the duke of orleans who was still prisoner in england prevailed on the protector and the council to consent that all his domains should be allowed to preserve a neutrality during the war and should be sequestered for greater security into the hands of the duke of burgundy this prince who was much less cordial in the english interests than formerly went to paris and made the proposal to the duke of bedford but the regent coldly replied that he was not of a humour to beat the bushes while others ran away with the game an answer which so disgusted the duke that he recalled all the troops of burgundy that acted in the siege this place however was every day more and more closely invested by the english great scarcity began already to be felt by the garrison and inhabitants charles in despair of collecting an army which should dare to approach the enemy's entrenchments not only gave the city for lost but began to entertain a very dismal prospect with regard to the general state of his affairs he saw that the country in which he had hitherto with great difficulty subsisted would be laid entirely open to the invasion of a powerful and victorious enemy and he already entertained thoughts of retiring with the remains of his forces into languedoc and dauphiny and defending himself as long as possible in those remote provinces but it was fortunate for this good prince that as he lay under the dominion of the fair the women whom he consulted had the spirit to support his sinking resolution in this desperate extremity mary of anjou his queen a princess of great merit and prudence vehemently opposed this measure which she foresaw would discourage all his partisans and serve as a general signal for deserting a prince who seemed himself to despair of success his mistress too the fair agnes sorrel who lived in entire amity with the queen seconded all her remonstrances and threatened that if he thus pusillanimously threw away the sceptre of france she would seek in the court of england a fortune more correspondent to her wishes love was able to rouse in the breast of charles that courage which ambition had failed to excite he resolved to dispute every inch of ground with an imperious enemy and rather to perish with honour in the midst of his friends than yield ingloriously to his bad fortune when relief was unexpectedly brought him by another female of a very different character who gave rise to one of the most singular revolutions that is to be met with in history in the village of domremy near vaucouleurs on the borders of lorraine there lived a country girl of twenty-seven years of age called jeanne d'arc who was servant in a small inn 
and who, in that station, had been accustomed to tend the horses of the guests, to ride them without a saddle to the watering-place, and to perform other offices which, in well-frequented inns, commonly fall to the share of the men-servants. This girl was of an irreproachable life, and had not hitherto been remarked for any singularity, whether that she had met with no occasion to excite her genius, or that the unskilful eyes of those who conversed with her had not been able to discern her uncommon merit. It is easy to imagine that the present situation of France was an interesting object even to persons of the lowest rank, and would become the frequent subject of conversation. A young prince expelled his throne by the sedition of native subjects, and by the arms of strangers, could not fail to move the compassion of all his people whose hearts were uncorrupted by faction. And the peculiar character of Charles, so strongly inclined to friendship and the tender passions, naturally rendered him the hero of that sex whose generous minds know no bounds in their affections. The siege of Orléans, the progress of the English before that place, the great distress of the garrison and inhabitants, the importance of saving this city and its brave defenders, had turned thither the public eye, and Joan, inflamed by the general sentiment, was seized with a wild desire of bringing relief to her sovereign in his present distresses. Her unexperienced mind, working day and night on this favourite object, mistook the impulses of passion for heavenly inspirations, and she fancied that she saw visions, and heard voices, exhorting her to re-establish the throne of France, and to expel the foreign invaders. An uncommon intrepidity of temper made her overlook all the dangers which might attend her in such a path, and thinking herself destined by heaven to this office, she threw aside all that bashfulness and timidity so natural to her sex, her years, and her low station. She went to Vaucouleurs, procured admission to Baudricourt, the governor, informed him of her inspirations and intentions, and conjured him not to neglect the voice of God, who spoke through her, but to second those heavenly revelations which impelled her to this glorious enterprise. Baudricourt treated her at first with some neglect, but on her frequent returns to him and importunate solicitations, he began to remark something extraordinary in the maid, and was inclined, at all hazards, to make so easy an experiment. It is uncertain whether this gentleman had discernment enough to perceive that great use might be made with the vulgar of so uncommon an engine, or, what is more likely in that credulous age, was himself a convert to this visionary. But he adopted, at last, the schemes of Joan, and he gave her some attendants, who conducted her to the French court, which at that time resided at Chinon. It is the business of history to distinguish between the miraculous and the marvellous, to reject the first in all narrations merely profane and human, to doubt the second, and when obliged by unquestionable testimony, as in the present case, to admit of something extraordinary, to receive as little of it as is consistent with the known facts and circumstances. It is pretended that Joan, immediately on her admission, knew the king, 
though she had never seen his face before, and though he purposefully kept himself in the crowd of courtiers, and had laid aside everything in his dress and apparel which might distinguish him, that she offered him, in the name of the supreme creator, to raise the siege of Orléans, and conduct him to Rheims, to be there crowned and anointed, and on his expressing doubts of her mission, revealed to him, before some sworn confidants, a secret which was unknown to all the world beside himself, and which nothing but a heavenly inspiration could have discovered to her, and that she demanded, as the instrument of her future victories, a particular sword which was kept in the church of St. Catherine of Fierbois, and which, though she had never seen it, she described by all its marks, and by the place in which it had long lain neglected. This is certain, that all these miraculous stories were spread abroad, in order to captivate the vulgar. The more the king and his ministers were determined to give in to the illusion, the more scruples they pretended. An assembly of grave doctors and theologians cautiously examined Joan's mission, and pronounced it undoubted and supernatural. She was sent to the Parliament, then residing at Poitiers, and was interrogated before that assembly. The presidents, the councillors, who came persuaded of her imposture, went away convinced of her inspiration. A ray of hope began to break through that despair in which the minds of all men were being enveloped. Heaven had now declared itself in favour of France, and had laid bare its outstretched arm to take vengeance on her invaders. Few could distinguish between the impulse of inclination and the force of conviction, and none would submit to the trouble of so disagreeable a scrutiny. End of section 44 Chapter 20 Part 2 Recording by Daniel Fraser